Welcome to History 605, the South Dakota State Historical Society's podcast, where we talk to historians, curators, filmmakers, artists, and authors about how they interpret the past. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the State Historical Society. Join me and our guests as we think historical. So it is most appropriate and fitting that in our first year of our second century that this should also be a year of reconciliation between the Indian people and the non-Indian people alike. History 605 is sponsored by the Groover Family Trust and done in partnership with South Dakota Public Broadcasting. Welcome to the show. Welcome to History 605. Today on the show, we have John Lauk. John is a senior political advisor to Senator John Thune, but also an accomplished historian of the Midwest. A previous guest on the show, John has authored and edited several books about history and literature on the Midwest. He's also a founding member of the Midwest History Association and recently was the recipient of their Frederick Jackson Turner Prize. He's a former trustee of the South Dakota State Historical Society and previous recipient of the Herbert Schell Award for Best Article in South Dakota History Journal. John, welcome back to History 605. Great to be here, Ben. I think you're the first two-time guest. Well, uh, thank you very much. I appreciate uh, that. Uh, High uh, honor. There ought to be a jacket or a... a <laughs> Ascot or something that goes with that. I'll have to well, come up was, with something. I would think so. <laughs> um, well, The Good Country, uh, an amazing book. I finished it a few days ago, and uh, uh, the book has a pretty clear argument about an, a founding document that often gets overlooked. We think of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, the Declaration of Independence, certainly, but often in that pantheon the Northwest Ordinance kind of gets skipped over, but your book makes the argument that it's time to really dwell on that. Um, how did you um, develop that? And and then the other question I wanted to ask you is, you start off with Hugh Hefner, <laughs> not inspired by the Northwest Ordinance. Um, what uh, what drove the Hugh Hefner relationship? What's, what's the... Well, before we get to the Northwest Ordinance mm-hmm. and before we get to Hugh Hefner... Thank you for allowing me to be on the show. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to talk about this. And there's a very specific South Dakota origin story to this book I think we should touch on very sure. briefly. Um, I know you've been teaching classes at South Dakota State University. Mm-hmm. And uh, I taught there, uh, well, it's 20 years ago now. I can't oh. believe it. And um, I remember one day... Uh, the chair of the department came down the hallway and said, and this is like a month before classes were supposed to begin, mm-hmm. and said, oh, by the way, you're teaching the South Dakota history course this fall. Oh. And I had not prepared for that. And so I went into <laughs> um, DEFCON 5. Yeah, yeah. Or is it DEFCON 1? Whatever it's, the higher alert it's, one is. It's 5. You want to stay out of that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I went to the library and started scrambling around and tried to put together a course on yeah. the history of South Dakota. Yeah. And the first thing that I thought about uh, was we need a better book on the 
founding of South Dakota. Now, there was a Yale historian who wrote one back in the 40s, and there's a whole story associated with that book that we don't need to go down that rabbit trail today. Uh, But it is an interesting one. But it was way out of date, and I think it was wrong in very important aspects. So I began making notes for a book on early South Dakota history and the history of Dakota Territory. Mm -hmm. And that came out a long time ago under the title Prairie Republic. But toward the end of that project, I started to think more about the fact that all these people coming into South Dakota, especially East River, South Dakota, were from the Midwest, or I should say 90% of them were. They were moving here from Wisconsin and Minnesota and Iowa and Illinois, et cetera. I mean, it was a very clear migration pattern. Mm -hmm. And... I began to think, uh, boy, I should I should add some more about this because you know that determines the DNA of a place. Right. Who moves there? Mm-hmm. And and then I thought, well, I'll just go read um, some Midwestern history for a couple of weeks and try and uh, put together a couple paragraphs explaining the significance of this migration stream. Yeah. Well, when I was doing that. I thought, boy, there's really not much written about the Midwest. I can't just go out there and grab two or three books and get a good sense of it. Mm -hmm. So that got me to thinking, whatever happened to Midwestern history? I mean, why don't we have a big field on this? I mean, there are huge fields out there for the history of the American South, history of the American West. Mm -hmm. I mean, these are very vibrant, big fields with lots of centers of study Mm -hmm. and publishers focused on them. And the Midwest had nothing. Hmm. So um, I started doing a little more digging, did a few essays on this, and asked some other historians about it. And at the Northern Great Plains Conference, we decided to form a working group to focus on Midwestern history. Now, notice I'm talking about the Northern Plains Conference because there was no Midwestern History Conference. So then we started a Midwestern History Association, which now meets in Michigan every year. Okay. And we started a journal, which Mm -hmm. every field of study needs an academic journal kind Mm -hmm. of advancing the ball. Mm -hmm. But all of this started because of my digging around in early South Dakota history. Okay. So that's how this began, uh, low those many years ago. And now um, I finally completed a book on the region, which I think will be a good entry point for a lot of people to figure out what the region means. Right. Okay, so now what does that have to do with Hugh Hefner? Right. Well, Hugh Hefner's parents um, grew up in Nebraska, Mm -hmm. and they were very nice, small-town Methodist farmer types Mm -hmm. uh, from Holdridge, Nebraska. Okay. And um, they uh, raised uh, their kids in a certain way, Mm -hmm. and of course, Hugh went off and did uh, other things with his life. I guess uh, for those, for the uninitiated here, we're kind of old, so we remember this, but younger listeners might not know, he founded the Playboy Empire, which was very scandalous at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, I was driving home from the South Dakota Festival of Books out in Deadwood and listening to an interview uh, that Terry Gross had done with Hugh Hefner. Actually, she had done it many years before, but they were replaying it because he had recently he died. Away, yeah. And uh, he says in this interview, well, you know, my my parents were, you know, your typical small town Methodist Puritans from the Midwest. And I wanted to break away from all that. Yeah. And 
then I thought he would describe how terrible his upbringing was and how mean his parents were, but he didn't. He said, and they were great people. They were so nice. They mm-hmm. dedicated themselves to their small town and they were patriotic and good civic uh, mm-hmm. citizens. Mm-hmm. And I thought, wow, that's kind of incongruous. That really doesn't fit together. Right. And it just made me think more about this old world that yeah. Hefner's parents came from. And right. how do we describe it? And what what are its component parts? And that's okay. what I'm trying to figure out okay. in this book. So your book deals with the 19th century, 1800 and 1900. And uh, so let's get into that uh, founding document then, uh, the Northwest Ordinance. Who who writes that and what? Uh, how does that come about? Because it's, well, it's written before the Constitution is written, our well, current one. In 1787, of course, the constitutional framers were meeting down in Philadelphia and making all kinds of world history that yeah. we know fairly well. Yeah. People who are uh, deep into American history know that well. But at the same time, the Continental Congress was meeting up in New York. Mm-hmm. No one remembers this um, session where they met. It's completely forgotten and gets no attention. Uh, but they were trying to make decisions about the future of the republic. Mm-hmm. And one of the documents they had to craft was some sort of legislation to govern this big territory that would become – the American Midwest Mm -hmm. that they had acquired in the Revolutionary War against the British because the British had won this big chunk of territory from the French during the French and Indian War. And uh, all the ideals of the revolution were poured into that document. Right. And they uh, made very clear that there would be very robust protections for civil liberties. Mm -hmm. Um, They made clear that all of these future states in the Midwest would be governed by highly democratic constitutions, small d democratic. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most importantly, though, they banned slavery from the future Midwest. Mm -hmm. And that completely shaped the region differently. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the framers of the Constitution down in Philadelphia, they didn't fix this problem. Um, They allowed slavery to continue. Mm-hmm. And they wouldn't have gotten the sign-off of the southern states if they would not have done so. So they made all these terrible compromises like the two-thirds rule, et cetera. Right. But when governing, when thinking about the governing of the future of the Midwest, they had the freedom to get in there, a ban on slavery. Yeah. And this – the formal title of the legislation was the Northwest Ordinance because mm-hmm. at this time – um, they were talking about the territory north of the Ohio River mm-hmm. and west of the existing colonies. Mm-hmm. So this is often called the Old Northwest. Correct. You, you kind of go through a, a nomenclature lesson in the, in the book too. So today it's called the Midwest, but it wasn't always the Midwest because there was no West to be the middle right. of. So how does that name kind of uh, transpire? Yeah. Well, at first uh, they call it the Northwest Territory because mm-hmm. that's where it was situated uh, vis-a-vis the existing colonies. Which would go as far west as the Mississippi? Mississippi River. Yeah. Right. Okay. So the old, the traditional five states of the old Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, but after a while, after we purchased the Louisiana Territory from France in 1803, and that's why we're here because yeah. of South Dakota yeah. emerges out of that purchase from Napoleon. Uh, after we acquire Louisiana and then uh, the territory farther west, all of a sudden uh, there is a new northwest. Yeah. Uh, and at first, 
it would have encompassed Minnesota and the Dakotas. Mm -hmm. But then when you move farther west, of course, we talk about the Pacific Northwest today. But that made those original states that would become the Midwest the old Northwest. I see. Okay. Now, there is – there's a historian – at Miami University in Ohio, Andrew Offenberger, who's done a lot of great work on where, when these terms emerge. Okay. And in the 1850s or so, people begin to talk about the Middle West, okay. meaning, so if you're, let's say, taking a train west, um, the f- you would hit the Middle West, and then you would hit the Far West, say, California, et cetera. Yeah. And later on, this gets shortened into Midwest. Okay, okay. Well, you write, um, quote, the Midwest of the long 19th century, to state it boldly, constituted the most advanced democratic society that the world had seen to date. But its achievements are rarely highlighted in history texts and indeed seldom mentioned. So to state that case, you kind of have to go around the world a little bit and give folks a tour of what human rights or democratic institutions are like uh, at the time, not only in the United States, but in Brazil and Europe and so forth. Talk a little bit about that tour that you kind of provide in the, in the rest of the world. What's going on as far as voting rights, as far as suffrage, as far as slavery and so forth? Well, one of the most powerful things you can do in historiography or history writing, but one of the most difficult things to do is make comparisons. Because mm-hmm. we can describe a place, but when you do it in a vacuum – you don't get a sense of why it's important or why it's different or right. distinct. Right. And I wanted to get across to the readers how democratically advanced this region was in the 19th century. So I just thought, well, I'll do a quick survey to start the book of what was going on in other places in the Midwest. And I happened to be ice fishing up in uh, Watertown, South Dakota, and I mm-hmm. hit that great bookstore which oh, all yeah. South Dakotans and listeners of History 605 should know about. Yes. Um, DDR Books in Watertown. DDR Books. It's a great place. Yeah. Run by a retired debate coach in Watertown, mm-hmm. a legend in American or in South Dakota debate circles. And national debate circles. Yeah, he actually. The public debate system. Yeah. He did. He, he tried to make debate um, sane again because mm-hmm. debate went down this crazy rabbit trail of speed reading, essentially. Oh. And he tried to make it about arguments and evidence again. Yeah. Donis yeah. did. Donis. Yep. Um, but I went in there one day just to pick up some books, and I bought this old history of Russia um, that was very good. But I, as I was reading, I'm like, man, Russia in the 19th century is such a dark, terrible place. Yes. And it really brings home how – um, how enlightened the Midwest was and how historic what they were doing really was. Mm-hmm. So then I continued the uh, tour just to give a little uh, different sampling from different places, talked about Brazil and China and Japan mm-hmm. and even England and France, who yeah. you know we think of as so advanced, but not really. Right. Mostly monarchical, very few people could vote through much of the 19th century. But out in the Midwest, um, you know, most, um, you know, adult white men could vote. Yeah. And that sounds um, sort of um, repellent to our ears in 2022. But this was a major advance in world history in terms right. of democracy. Right. Um, and most people had access to the courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people – and um, we forget how important this was. Most people in the Midwest had their own farms. 
Right. They were small farmers, mm-hmm. fee simple yeoman farmers who had mm-hmm. control of their own land. This mm-hmm. is unheard of. Yeah. In Russia, you were a serf. Yeah. You lived on some nobleman's land. Right. And in most other places too. Um, so that made the Midwest a different place. And you don't you don't realize uh, how advanced it was right. unless you put it in global terms. Right. Well, let's talk about the implications of that then. Think about that with regards to, say, property ownership and so forth or developing the habits of owning your own land. What's, what's some of the implications of that for a society? Well, it gives you a stake in society. Mm-hmm. You own your own property. Um, it gives you um, a basis for citizenship mm-hmm. and um, – it makes you, you know, dedicated to the republic. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you're a serf in Russia, I mean, you want the revolution to come. Yeah. You want to upend society because right. you're on the bottom of it. Right, right. And what's the Northwest Ordinance say about education? And you, you have a, a theme running through the book about the value of education and literacy was, and so forth. It was a very high priority uh, for the uh, framers of the Northwest Ordinance. And the people out in the Northwest Territory immediately went to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the first things they did was set up a school and set up a library and many colleges. I mean, this is probably per capita, pound for pound, the most heavily developed space in the world for colleges. I mean, there's 20 colleges in Ohio uh, by, I think, the 1830s or 1840s. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's very impressive. And as a result, we have very high rates of literacy. You know, mm-hmm. by the end of the 19th century, uh, we have literacy rates um, in the 90s. 90% yeah. of people could read and write. And so that makes you a better citizen because you can understand what's going on in the republic. You can read mm-hmm. the newspapers. And let's face it, if you're a serf in Russia, you're not literate. Right. You have no land. Mm-hmm. You have no rights. Mm-hmm. It's a bad life. Right. Well, even in England, I think you make the point. Um, in the 1830s, there's a lot of reform in England still. I think by the time of that reform bill passing in the 1830s, there's still only 4 or 5% that can vote, mm-hmm. which is astonishing. We, we, if you study uh, British history and so forth, that reform bill, Wilberforce, um, William Wilberforce and all the, the, the prime ministers at the time pushing through these reform bills. And at the end, what do you got? You got 5% voting, you know, <laughs> right. uh, compared to, you know, these states, even New England. I mean, we can talk about the South, but I mean, the voting rights in Massachusetts and uh, the official church. When does the official church in Massachusetts go away? I think it's 1830s. Uh, I think it may be slightly later than that. Yeah. But yes, I mean, the Puritans set up uh, these states like Connecticut and Massachusetts, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And people don't remember this, but these were yeah. state-run churches. You yeah. paid taxes in to support the Puritan church. Yeah. And so I wouldn't call it a theocracy, but it no. was, you know, it had, there was a, not the separation of church and state we would think of. Yeah. Now, out in the Northwest Territory, however, uh, you have uh, no state-run church, and you have an amalgamation of different denominations showing mm-hmm. up there. Mm-hmm. And so no denomination controls the territory or dominates politics or the culture right. like the Puritans would do in Massachusetts or the Anglicans would do mm-hmm. in Virginia. Right. So that gives it entirely different cast to life in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Well, regarding uh, South Dakota, we kind of 
straddle the line? Where It seems to me that, and you've been a part of the, uh, advancing this debate about the, where's the Great Plains begin and where's the Midwest end and so forth. In South Dakota, we, uh, well, we've had, we've had people on the show talking about General Beadle before, the Constitution and something in your previous book that you mentioned was about those territorial days and those arguments and debate. They seem to um, model the state's constitution. There are phrases in there that are lifted right out of the Northwest Ordinance, it seems. So um, that Midwest constitutional legal imprint is there in South Dakota, but yet we have a geographic and topography that's Great Plains-ish. Where where does that line begin and what does that do to the culture of South Dakota? Well, this is... uh this is. I'm glad you bring this up because um, I uh, used to practice law, and I remember doing some research into a legal question, and it related to a provision in the South Dakota Constitution. And when you mm-hmm. analyze a provision, you want to know why it was put in there, what's the legislative debate, or what were the framers saying about that? What was their intent? Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember going through one particular provision and they said, or I found out through my research, oh, this was taken out of the Illinois Constitution. And this other phrase was taken out of the Michigan Constitution. And this was taken out of the Iowa. So this, again, shows this cultural migration from the Midwestern states into South Dakota. Now, remember, most of those people who were at the South Dakota Constitutional Conventions, Mm -hmm. which met Two blocks from us right. uh, to the south in over Germania here in Germania Hall. Yeah. Well, in Germania Hall, which yeah. is now City Hall in downtown yeah. Sioux Falls. Those people were all Midwesterners. They mm-hmm. they grew up, say, in Indiana, mm-hmm. and they went to law school. And so when they be- came out to Dakota Territory and settled, they were the natural people to be sent to the uh, Constitutional Convention. So mm-hmm. they had in the back of their mind, oh, yeah, this is how we did it in Indiana. Mm-hmm. Um so that's a very another good reason South Dakotans need to know this history of the Midwest. Now, your question about where does the Midwest end and where does the Great Plains begin? Well, first of all, I enjoyed your show with Andrew Graybell talking about right. Walter Prescott Webb's mm-hmm. uh, famous book, The Great Plains. That's mm-hmm. a great discussion about it. Of course, I was excited when I first learned of that book, and then when I read it, it's all about Texas. Yeah. It really doesn't yeah. cover us, but yeah. um, classic Texan, yeah. Texas narcissism. <laughs> uh, but I would point you to uh, a book published by the Center for Western Studies at Augustana here mm-hmm. in Sioux Falls called The Interior Borderlands, yes. which includes 20 essays specifically on this question of where does the Midwest end, mm-hmm. where does the Great Plains begin? And in short, roughly the 98th meridian mm-hmm. or just to the uh, east of Chamberlain, basically. You, okay. If you want a rough approximation, the yeah. Missouri River in our state. Yeah. Once you get past the river, it's very Western. It's mm-hmm. more arid. There's mm-hmm. more ranching. There's mm-hmm. more Indian reservations. It's a different mm-hmm. place, as you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, Eastern South Dakota is very much within the orbit of the Midwest. And that's why, you know, let's face it, in South Dakota, the West gets a lot more attention in our state because of yeah. Mount Rushmore and the Black Hills, et cetera. I mm-hmm. get it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, there's a lot more people, East River. And their orientation is to the Midwest. So if you want a complete yeah. understanding of the state, yeah. you got to know the Midwestern part. 
Right, right. Well, your, your title is a good country, and you make a point. It's not a perfect country, um, as in, in kind of anticipating some, some arguments with your book and so forth. And you do have a chapter on those who are still left out from the civil rights and the suffrage and vote, voting and so forth. And you talk about the complications, particularly with um, slavery and with African-Americans. Uh, in fact, there's, there's the diaspora after the Civil War of a lot of African-Americans coming north. Um, but what is the, what's the complication in, say, Illinois, which has a very close vote despite the Northwest Ordinance, a very near-run thing about allowing slavery or um, there had been people there before, that, uh, the French and the Spanish and so forth. How did that kind of leave this imprint, that, this ghost of the prior slavery prior to the ordinance passing? Well, Illinois is kind of a complicated problem because it's a very horizontal state. Of course, mm -hmm. it has Chicago in the north touching on Lake Michigan, mm -hmm. but it juts way far down into the south. Mm -hmm. I mean, the southern tip of Illinois is further south than Richmond, Virginia, the capital of the Confederacy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that makes it a little different place uh, from north to south. Uh, Stephen Douglas used to poke fun at Abraham Lincoln because when he was way down in Cairo, Illinois, yeah. he didn't talk so much about his anti-slavery views. Oh, okay. But when he was up further north where there were more Yankee settlements and stuff, yeah. he talked more about being anti-slavery. I mean, it just yeah. you were just talking about how South Dakota's kind of divided east-west. Right. Well, Illinois is kind of – there's – well, right now people think about Chicagoland right. and then downstate. Yep, yep. Um, but Illinois uh, didn't come in with a blank slate. Uh, Illinois had been controlled for many years – uh, by the French. Mm -hmm. uh, it was part of New France. And there were many old French trappers that, you know, had set up camps along mm -hmm. uh, the Mississippi River, Kaskaskia, and places like that. Right. And the French, in the French Empire, you could have slavery. And so many of these French people living there um, held slaves. Now, after the revolution, and the Americans come in and they declare a ban on slavery, mm -hmm. a lot of those people left. Yeah. And they were welcomed into Spanish territory. The Spaniards held Louisiana for a while after yeah. France lost it. They re reacquired it later on in about 1800. And then, because yeah. Napoleon had grand plans for it, but yeah. then he needed money and sold it yeah. uh, in 1803. So some of those people left for Spanish territory where slavery was allowed, mm -hmm. um, but the ones who stayed, they um, there was a big legal question early on. Right. What, what are, what's going to happen to these slaves? Because the Northwest Ordinance says you can't have slavery. Yeah. And uh, one of the early uh, territorial governors said, okay, no more slavery, but these slaves right now which I think numbered, if I remember right, like three or four hundred. Right. Uh, they're grandfathered in, but anyone born after this mm -hmm. will become a free citizen mm -hmm. of the republic. Mm -hmm. And so that made Illinois a little bit different. The other thing that happened was since Illinois, the bottom part of Illinois, at, which was close to the Ohio River, was so deep into the south, a lot of the first migrants into Illinois were Southerners. Yeah. And they were fighting to legalize slavery. Yeah. And um, that was a battle they lost. Mm -hmm. um, the people in the rest of Illinois, 
organized for a couple of years. They had a big vote. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a very interesting story. This spawned a lot of anti-slavery and um, abolitionist societies in Illinois. But it was one of the first clear battles and indications that the Midwest was going to be a non-slave area. Yeah. And how about American Indians? Uh, You talk about the the previous scholarship that's done on the Midwest. Uh, I think you used the term shatter zone, which you lift, I think, from White's book about the middle ground of the Midwest and the Great Lakes area. Uh, What what does that mean, the shatter zone and and the impact of the French fur trade and the French and Indian War? Well, there's an absolutely fascinating history here that goes back into the 1500s. My right. book picks up the story about 1800, mm-hmm. but there is a very important story here. And you mentioned Richard White, uh, the Stanford historian, mm-hmm. um, who's now retired, but he began his career, people forget this, at Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. And he was interested in this new field of Native American history, which really took off in the 70s and 80s. And since he was in Michigan, he thought, well, I'm going to throw down my bucket here, as mm-hmm. they say, and find out you know, what the story of Native American history is here. Mm-hmm. Uh, the result of it was his uh, classic book called The Middle Ground. And in the f- early stages of that book, he talks about the Iroquois War mm-hmm. on the Huron and the devastating effects of that war and the shattering of Heronia, as it was called, and the fragments of that world and all the refugees from that war Mm -hmm. sort of trickled out into the Midwest. And they uh, tried to you know, reestablish themselves in various places, typically along river valleys, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is a whole fascinating prehistory to what happens later in the Midwest. And then after that, we get the French and Indian War, mm-hmm. where the British are allied with the Iroquois, the French ally with all these other tribes mm-hmm. that's that are kind of in the Ohio River Valley. Massive war. People call it the First World War. Yeah. And uh, then after that, after the British, you know, kind of luckily win. That was yeah. a tough war. They yep. got some breaks. Yeah. All ends on the plains of Abraham and Quebec. And yeah. these General Wolfe dying, all this ma- amazing mm-hmm. imagery. And then soon after that is Pontiac's Rebellion. And yeah. tons of history yeah. that is happening here before even – people even begin to think that the Americans might control this or that there might be a Midwest. Yeah. And this is a history that people really need to know. I'm I'm very excited to read the new Pekahomlanian book, uh, The Finnish Scholar. Oh, yeah. has a big book Indigenous, about... Indigenous uh, America? Yeah. Or, you should have him on, Ben. You yeah. need to... This is I've asked him. <laughs> I've asked him. He, he's, he has a standing invitation. <laughs> Well, so there's a big history that goes into this uh, territory, and it's fascinating. And there's been a ton of work on this yeah. in the last 40 years. Yeah. And I commend uh, everyone to it. I've listed some sources in the yeah. in the book to uh, give you some leads on how to follow it. But um, I start the book about 1800 when people are starting to think about, okay, Who's going to move into Ohio? What are they going to do? How are they going to set up a government? Yeah. But 
very important to know there's a major prehistory to this that yeah. I would I would love to delve into more. And since you're a military historian, Ben, uh, I would particularly um, flag these battles in the 1790s yeah. where the early American army is trying to uh, create stability and sort of establish themselves out in this territory, and it did not go well. Yeah, there were no. two major defeats. Yeah, uh, for the American army, and this, you know, caused President Washington to, um, you know, put a ton of money into the military and mm -hmm. finally get the you United get the States. Army he wanted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, this, this also has a going back to. Um, slavery anywhere, uh, anyway, the Dred Scott case seems to be kind of fueled by this fissure of is slavery um, going to be legal here and so forth? And here we have a slave saying, hey, I get to my freedom because of the way the laws are set up in my, uh, in my uh, situation. Um, I thought that was revealing as well. Well, uh, so there was a ton of friction between the South and the Midwest all throughout the 19th century because mm -hmm. slaves would escape across the Ohio River. Mm -hmm. Of course, this is the great scene in Uncle Tom's Cabin, escaping yeah. across the frozen Ohio River. Mm -hmm. um, these slaves would escape, uh, try and get into the Midwest and get their freedom. And especially beginning in the 1830s, the abolitionist network and the Underground Railroad, especially in Ohio and Michigan, was very, very strong. And this made Southern leaders furious. Yeah. And um, the people in the Midwest kept making it more difficult for the slave catchers right. to get these people back and flouting the law mm -hmm. and ignoring the Fugitive Slave Act. Mm -hmm. And Wisconsin, for example, um, they, even after federal authorities and the U.S. Supreme Court said, you cannot let all these people go who are freeing slaves. Mm -hmm. They did it anyway. Right. I mean, there's a really interesting um, well, there was feud between the yeah. regions about this. Yeah. The Wisconsin Supreme Court tells the United States, tough, yeah. basically. We're, we're not following the law. We're not following the law. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, well, uh, let's see. Make, I thought it was interesting you talked about a little bit military history and so forth. The, the what was the Midwestern impact on the Civil War? Well, I think it's safe to say that without the Midwest, um, it, it's very much in doubt that mm -hmm. the North would have prevailed in the Civil War. In fact, I would say they probably would have lost mm -hmm. because it did not go well on the Eastern Theater. Right. Um, out in the Midwest, however, mm -hmm. Ulysses S. Grant, William Tecumseh Sherman. Mm -hmm people from Illinois and Ohio, mm -hmm. they started uh, marching south from mm -hmm. the Midwest mm -hmm. um, out of Illinois mm -hmm. and down into Kentucky and Tennessee. And what did Grant do? He won battles. Yeah. And he just kept winning. Yeah. And, you know, people questioned his tactics and questioned if uh, the, um, the costs of his victories were a little too high, but not for Lincoln. Lincoln no. said, I need generals who win battles. A Midwesterner. Lincoln. Yeah. yeah. A Midwesterner again. Yeah. And so they um, – Grant was very successful um, nailing down the Western Theater, taking the Mississippi River. And finally, Lincoln says, I need you to come east because these guys out here keep losing battles yeah. and are fumbling around and it's going <laughs> to cost us the war. Yeah. And uh, so they brought Grant 
East to and put him in charge of the entire war, mm-hmm. and they turned Sherman loose to burn the South, essentially. Yeah. And that was the end of the war. Yeah. But without the Midwest, a huge number of troops contributed, mm-hmm. enormous amount of materiel, mm-hmm. foodstuffs yep. critical to the war effort. Yep. Uh, these are all things that yeah. you have to have to win the conflict. Yeah. Well, I invite uh, listeners to go back to listen to Oceans of Grain and talk about how, how the Army sets up the trading networks that uh, fuel and feed the Union Army uh, and create a lot of the capacity to for victory here. I recently uh, just finished this book. I can't believe I had not seen it before, but it's by a historian at the University of Illinois, mm-hmm. and it's called The Fall of the House of Dixie. Oh. And uh, it's about the Confederacy and why it thought it could win the war, Mm -hmm. but it made crazy assumptions uh, about, you know, how many many men they had, uh, how much war fighting capacity they had. um, And they were just outmatched by regions uh, like the Midwest. And so um, there's no question in my mind that the Midwest was crucial to the conclusion of the war. Now, you, you talk about the, this line, the revolt from the village. Um, and, maybe, and I think there's an argument in your book that we, it's due to this kind of belief that comes to pass, a revolt from the village or a disdainment of Midwestern values that, that we don't kind of understand the thing that your book is arguing about. Who's, who's Carl Van Doren and uh, what comes about that takes Midwesterners to kind of put down the place like Hugh Hefner, you mentioned him before, and Carl Van Doren and, and F. Scott Fitzgerald and some other folks who kind of make culture, but they don't do it from the Midwest. And Carl Van Doren grew up in a small town in uh, Illinois. And as you asked before, Mark Van Doren, his brother, was mm-hmm. the famous uh, mm-hmm. guy who got caught rigging the game shows in the 1950s. Oh, yeah. And yeah. there's a... The Robert Redford movie, Quiz Show. Yeah. Yes. There's a movie about it. It came yeah. out 10 years ago or so. Well, Carl Van Doren was his brother. And Carl um, got very restless um, in his um, in his Midwestern town. He, he uh, went off to... The East, he got a PhD in history, or in English, I should say, ended up in the English department at Columbia mm-hmm. and became the literary editor of The Nation uh-huh. magazine. And in 1921, he wrote an essay uh, for The Nation titled The Revolt from the Village. Okay. And into it, he put all these examples that he claimed proved all these people were leaving the Midwest because it was so backward and retrograde okay. and... Uh, and terrible, and in and so this is kind of a famous essay if you're into Midwestern studies. Mm-hmm. So I began to dig into this essay a little bit and mm-hmm. say, is this really true? And as I went through his examples one by one, I discovered that all of these people explicitly said in the years afterward. I did not revolt from the village. I do not believe in this construct. Mm-hmm. Carl Van Doren made this up. Okay. Let's not keep this going. I want to end this here. Yeah. You know, people like Sinclair Lewis and um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, mm-hmm. who you mentioned, um, they said, we were not revolting against our village. Mm-hmm. We liked these places we came from in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the final kicker to this story 
is that I found an old manuscript where Carl Van Doren had recorded his memoirs of growing up in a little town in Illinois. And this was a very honest accounting of how he grew up. And he did not talk about how terrible his hometown was. Uh, What he ended up saying was how lovely and decent and peaceful this place was. Mm -hmm. And so it was kind of a put on. I mean, he was writing things that he knew Eastern publishers publishers wanted to hear. There's an old phrase. I think it was um, maybe Hemingway or somebody said, uh, too many of these young writers from the Midwest warp themselves to the market. Mm-hmm. In other words, they're trying to curry favor right. with publishers in New York yeah. and write things they want to hear right. so they can get a book contract. Yeah. And they're not telling, they're not giving a truthful account of mm-hmm. what their life was like mm-hmm. in the small town Midwest. Sinclair Lewis is a great example of this because mm-hmm. everyone thinks of Sinclair Lewis like, oh, he's bashing his little hometown in Minnesota. That's really not what he was doing. Mm-hmm. And he he specifically said, that's not true. That's baloney. Don't believe what Van Doren is saying. And if you go back and read some of uh, Lewis's books like Main Street, what you're struck by is uh, like Carol Kennicott is kind of the villain. She comes in from the outside and tries to, mm-hmm. you know, change the town and mm-hmm. make these people into different people. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the gist of his argument. Mm-hmm. It's not that the town itself was so backward and terrible. Yeah. But this is something that this dynamic continues on today in our politics and culture. And mm-hmm. I think we need to put the revolt from the village finally uh, to bed mm-hmm. uh, once and for all, drive a stake through its heart. Okay. Well, uh, the book is The Good Country, published by Oklahoma University Press uh, just out two weeks ago, I think. Um, it's wonderful and uh, lots of footnotes and bibliography for Uh, chasing down other curious things that you're talking about. But the book is uh, wonderfully written, and congratulations, John. Thank you, Ben. We'd like to thank Howard and Dorothy Groover for their passion for history and the support of the South Dakota State Historical Society. It's through gifts such as theirs that we're able to tell South Dakota's history. We'd like to thank our partner, South Dakota Public Broadcasting, and most importantly, we'd like to thank you for listening. Please rate us on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to fine podcasts. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of History 605.